my name is Dan Brown. I'm here today again with another A Lens A Day, conversations about information architecture, information architecture. And today I get to talk to the savvy Professor Catherine Summers. Catherine, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Hello. Um, I am excited to talk to you. We've known each other for uh, a while, and you are one of the first people I know who's taught this subject uh, at the college and beyond uh, level. And I would imagine that you've seen kind of students um, engage with this material in lots of different ways. I think from my perspective as a practitioner, as someone who mentors, you know, new entrants into the field, I'm really curious about how they engage with uh, process in, in particular. Um, this uh, in some ways resembles a design process, in some ways resembles a research process, IA, and also is in some ways very academic, right, in sort of the way, the kinds of things that we get to think about. I'm curious, what have you seen uh, in your various cohorts of students in how they engage with process? What are the things that they maybe uh, really understand easily, and what are the parts of the process that they don't really understand quite as well? Uh, that's a really good question. I I think that students start by being very overwhelmed. They don't feel connected to the content. They don't feel connected to the users. They 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 don't know where to start or what to do. And so they can see that oh this isn't good or this is disorganized. But they 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 start by floundering. And so what I, over the years I've, I've inflicted on them is two things right off the bat. Like the first day of class, I say, okay, you're gonna do a content inventory. <laughs> and I tell them how much they'll hate it and how much work it's gonna be and how it can't be automated, you know, and all the things. Um, in fact, I still use the chapter from the first edition of your book with a lot of my students because you took it out. <laughs> But they, they absolutely have to start there. And so I have them do that. And they spend hours, you know, combing through the pages and trying to figure out what are the, what are the strategic goals of this site? And how does this page relate to those goals? Which goal is it, is it fulfilling, if any? And uh, once they're just a couple of weeks into that process, then I have them in parallel go start talking to users so that, you know, they've, they start by the time, the, by three weeks in, they start to have a real sense of, okay, what's here and how is it connect to the people who are trying to use it? So that's how we start. And that's where they really get it together. And then you know, based on those two things, they're ready to take a stab at a draft of, a, of, a, of an improved information architecture. And at that point, then, you know, we throw in things like competitive analysis, look at some competitors, they do a search analysis, they do an accessibility review. Um, but the real key to whether or not they, they start to put it together is then they take a shot at it and then they do tree testing with actual users. And so by the time they're done and they're pulling it all together for the client, and we always have a real world client, um, they're usually really amazing and impressive. <laughs> but the hardest thing to, the biggest hurdle really is that initial floundering. Like 
I have no idea. This is so much and it's not mine. Right. I, yeah, when you said they start by floundering, I was going to say it sounds like they've got a pretty good handle on the process because <laughs> I feel like as long as I've been doing this, sometimes I just got to be like, I don't know what is going on here. I don't know what's happening. I don't, I'm never going to get my arms around this. I really love that you start with both of these activities and in a sense, and you, you tell them to do the content inventory first. By the way, I have always referred to the content inventory as the, um, the bar mitzvah of the user experience world. Like until you've done a content inventory, you are not an adult in the user experience world. So I like that you're getting them to do that really soon uh, in, their, in their studies. And getting your arms around the content and getting your arms around who the users are and what they want. Like if you were to boil IA down, it feels like that's, it's got, you know, it's, it at least starts with those two things. Are there, are there sort of some revelations that you've seen them make or um, some light bulbs going off as they engage in this process that you can share with us, like things that surprised uh, them about this process uh, or even this, um, this way of thinking about uh, doing design? I don't know what surprises them, actually. That's a good question and I, will, I should pay more attention to that. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think it's, I've, over the years, I've watched, watched so many go through it. I teach this class every semester now for since 2002. So I anticipate a lot of the things that might cause problems kind of automatically. Um, but one of the things that I really love is when they realize uh, that the personas they've been churning out <laughs> in every class are kind of meaningless unless they've found a real user as the inspiration for it. And to watch them, you know, they, they come in with this, you know, little draft, little draft of a persona. And I'm like, well, why did they do that? So and so someone who had this would never have that. They would never want that. They would never, you know, why did they, why would, why would they want that? What would they want first? And they don't know, <laughs> right? Because they made it up. <laughs> and then, you know, it, when they actually go find some users and they find someone who's really a rich example of the target audience, and they start exploring their life and mapping that to the kinds of things that they put in their personas, all of a sudden their personas become real people. And at that point, I feel like, okay, they're they're ready to start meeting the needs of the people who will actually be using this website. Whereas before that, they were just in their own heads. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, again, that um, uh, I feel like we've had this conversation in, in some ways, if not you and me, then the industry has had this conversation, again, for decades, as you say, you've been teaching this almost 20 years. What that so we've talked about what has not changed, right? Doing a con doing a content inventory, engaging users uh, to at least some extent in the design process. Well, what have you seen that has changed? What do you think is different now in doing IA than it was 
when you first started teaching students about it? You know, what I love the most is the maturity that has come around accessibility. One of the things that I've tried to make characteristic of our whole graduate program is the emphasis on doing user research with special populations and designing for special populations. And so I've done a lot of work in the lab with people who use assistive technology. And most of my, 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 my personal focus is on people who have mild cognitive impairment or don't read well for other, other reasons. And so that's central in a lot of ways. But it used to be that I was starting from ground zero with students and they, they didn't know what to do with what I told them. Now they come in, they're already committed. They've already seen efforts in the real world to be accessible. They've sometimes maybe even been involved in those efforts themselves. And our understanding of what makes something accessible has matured to the point where we incorporate things like, oh, it needs to be usable in order to be accessible. The, you know, Section 508 was such a low bar <laughs> and it was so, so inadequate in terms of making something actually usable for people who are using a screen reader or a screen magnifier. Any, any, and I, I love the fact that even when a client comes to me and says, I need to make this accessible, they don't mean needing 508. They, they really mean, I want to make it easy to understand and easy to use <laughs> for people who, who have a range of, of abilities and approaches. So I, I just, I, that's, that's the biggest thing that's exciting to me. I just feel like we've matured in our understanding of what accessibility means and how to get there. And we've raised that bar a lot higher. That's, that is really encouraging uh, to hear as someone now who needs to do this, uh, tilt my head back in order to read certain things. <laughs> um, uh, I uh, appreciate uh, it even more now that we're, we're thinking carefully about um, uh, things like uh, the subtlety of, of contrast. Um, I mean, I've even noticed this in uh, the designers that I get to work with and hire, um, that accessibility is part of the vernacular, um, something that they're already thinking about. Um, and again, not just in terms of um, physical accessibility, but also inclusivity uh, as well. Like that is very much a part of the language that, that we're seeing uh, today. And they may or may not be good at it yet. Right. <laughs> they may or may not fully understand, you know, they, they, they can always improve in their execution and the depth of their uh, concept around it. But it's so exciting to see the progress that has been made. Absolutely. I feel like this actually brings us uh, to the lens that uh, you had picked out for yourself. Um, and I wonder if you might tell us what lens that is and uh, maybe describe it in your own words. Would that be okay? Absolutely. So the one that I picked was plain language because that is the most recognizable phrase that people uh, use when they talk about making it easy to understand for people with a range of reading abilities, a range of cognitive abilities. 
Um, I actually like to talk in terms of plain language and plain interaction. I would love to get that phrase yoked, I, the, the two phrases yoked together and applied broadly because so much of what we do online is interactive and interaction can be plain or complicated, right? It can be straightforward or uh, circuitous. And I, I would love for, for us to think of those things together. Let's make it easy to understand and easy to use, easy to interact with. Um, I actually, when I, when I think about executing plain language, I don't think about it as plain. I think about it as simple and familiar. A lot of, I, you see people use um, sometimes automated readability tools to try to estimate, you know, how they're doing. And yes, if you, you better do that rather than nothing, but they're, they're very limited because they measure how many syllables something has. And what really affects how easy it is to understand is how familiar the word is. So for example, the word angst is not one that we use every day, but it's a single syllable word. <laughs> and so we'll be, we'll, we'll increase, you know, improve your score on <laughs> readability measurement. Um, whereas, you know, there's, there are lots of three syllable words uh, like appointment <laughs> that are very familiar to us that would not score so well. So you really need to think about making it making it easy to understand i think i i think 42 percent of adults in the united states read at an eighth grade level or below they read at at basic or below basic levels of literacy that means that they're less they're not likely to make inferences while they're reading they're not likely to, to, they can't remember uh, long steps when they're on step three, they don't remember, they're not thinking about step one anymore because all of their cognitive resources are going towards low level information processing. And um, an example of that is, a, a, we, we did this from voting research a long time ago, we had um, an error message that said, um, you, you can vote for you can vote for four people. You voted for two. Those are all simple words. It's pretty straightforward. You think it was as simple as it could get, but in fact, it didn't work for uh, for that forty two percent. And so, because it it asked you to make the inference, so we changed it to you voted for two. You can vote for two more. <laughs> We just did the math for them. And all of a sudden, everyone understood the error message and was able to resolve the, the error um, based you know, in the way that they chose to do so. Um, from a cognitive perspective, what you're trying to do is minimize the demands on working memory. So you're using familiar words. You're, you're, you're using things in the, you know, if, if, X, then Y, you never reverse the order. If you don't have compound phrases, like um, if you want to mail in your request and then go to the, um, 
and you and and want if you want to mail in your request for a ballot and you want to vote in person or no i'm i'm saying it right the way cuz i'm so so uh, so built into this if you want to mail in your ballot and want to go in person that's harder to understand than you want to mail in your ballot and you want to go in person you you're having a compound phrase for your verb separates the subject a long ways from that second verb and so you'll see people stumble and have to back up you know with the eye tracker you can literally see them uh backtracking <laughs> as they try to you know make sense with that sentence whereas if you just repeat the subject they can just keep going and and decode in the moment and the way i like to help students think about it it's a lot like designing for a screen uh, screen magnifier. I don't know how much time you've spent trying to use those or watch people use those, but they're actually a lot harder. They, they show up usability problems a lot more starkly than um, a screen reader does because whatever you're looking at covers up everything else on that screen, right? So if, if you haven't built in a really logical, really obvious structure information structure on the page they won't find what they need because what they're looking at will cover up what they need you literally can't see what you don't see and so it's like it's like looking at the world through a paper uh the tube of a paper towel roll you know which we all did <laughs> when That's we were kids um all you see is the little bit that you're looking at right that second and that's the way the world works for people who don't read well because their working memory is full of figuring out what this means right now and it's the way you a uh, screen magnifier works you literally only see that little bit and if <laughs> if um if you put something over here they won't find it you've got to it's got to be a very very predictable path uh through through the material um so when you want to boil down plain language, ironically, it's not about the language at all. It's about figuring what is the core message. And that is the core question for information architecture. Right. You know, you, if you figure out the core message, then you start with that. <laughs> um, the, the principle is you start with what's most important on the page and everything below gets less important because one thing we found with people with low literacy skills they'll stop reading a lot sooner than someone perhaps with high literacy you want to make it so that wherever they stop everything they read was more important than the stuff they didn't read um and so once you've figured out the core message then you use the language you use the visual cues of shape of you know the size of the input field of the the visual structure of the language you cut out all the visual distractions you know and it it's you make the wayfinding almost non-existent because you just you know you're so guided it's just so clear um you don't so that so that they so that they're not distracted from understanding by trying to figure out where's the next part of the lesson right um and so if you can if you can get it to the core message then 
all the rest of it can fall into place. Um, I'll just give you an example, I guess. Uh, this is a paper form that I was just given by this Baltimore city. <laughs> and it's actually the legislature wanted to do something good. They wanted to help out renters. And so they've added an extra step in the process of eviction. Um, before you can even go to court to say this tenant owes me a ton of rent, they've inserted an extra form that you have to give to the tenant saying, I'm getting ready to take you to court <laughs> for, the, for this overdue rent. Um, but when they sent me this form, even to me, it looked like a shortcut to eviction. It was absolutely unclear that it was meant to be a helpful thing. Uh, they had put all the, the, the point of the form is to tell you that there's help for renters, that they're, you know, legal aid societies. If you're here, you can look at these. That, that was what the form was literally for. But that was buried in tiny type at the end. And the bulk of the form was all of this legal stuff from, you know, here's your landlord's name. Here's the tenant's names. Here's all this legal, legal language. Here's how much you owe. You know, here's here's where you would contact me. And you know, three fourths of the page looked exactly like the the form when you're getting evicted. And then at the bottom, there's oh, by the way, there's you know, there's some places that you can get help. The name of the form said it was for summary ejectment which to me sounds like <laughs> somewhere it's summarily being ejected, right? Um, so what, what I'm trying to do, and unfortunately I didn't, nobody gave it to me until after it had been approved, right? So we're gonna have to, we have to actually lodge an appeal to make it changed. But, but what it really needs is to have the, the order completely reversed, where you have to start with the landlord's name and the tenant's name, because that's the court has to know who this is about. But then put, you know, you're about to be taken to court. Here are some resources for you. And by the way, here's how much your landlord says you owe. You can ask them for a, a, an itemized list and some documentation, um, you know, but it, it, it was given to me to simplify the language, but that wasn't the problem. It was a problem, but it wasn't That's the right. problem. The problem was, they had not identified the core message and made that the foundation of the structure. Um, that, what a great example. I mean, what a scary example, but, um, but, and I guess I'm, I'm glad that someone's trying to do something uh, about that uh, issue. Um, uh, as with a lot of these things, it feels like their heart is in the right place, but in implementation, uh, it lost something. Um, uh, I, I love that you've um, sort of inserted the idea of familiarity into this notion of plain language where uh, certainly the way I wrote the lens, it emphasizes simplicity, um, uh, but bringing familiarity into it is great. And it's actually, it sheds light for me on, on part of my process because uh, when I'm looking at my work, I will, uh, I will not just ask myself, how do I make this simpler, but how do I, use language that I know the target audience is familiar with. It seems like a straightforward thing to ask oneself, but the point of these lenses is to sort of, uh, the intent here is to kind of surface these questions, right? Sort of make them very 
um, explicit to the practitioner um, because sometimes we forget to do these things or it doesn't occur to us to do these things. How would you advise your students or someone you're working with um, on how to best make use of this lens? How would you sort of coach them or teach them um, uh, how to sort of bring this lens to bear on their work? Ultimately, the only way to really do it properly is to have, is to test with people who don't read well. Um, but before that, you look for what's the core message. You look for how can I signal this visually as, uh, and structurally as well as with words? Um, and, you know, how can I use a more familiar word? And I actually, I love in your, in your sheet, the third bullet point where sometimes there are words that you have to use <laughs> cholesterol, you know, it's a four syllable word. They may or may not be used to reading it. You've got to use it. Um, you, if all the other words are simple and you don't throw out 1500 medical terms, you take the one and you define it in context, just in the sentence, not in parentheses, just cholesterol or the, the, the you know, the fat that builds up in your arteries is um, a normal part of life. It doesn't become a problem until you get too much of it and the arteries start to get clogged. You know, the, you can define it in context, um, but you, that's not what you asked. I just, I saw that. I wanted to just, you know, plug, plug what you plugged already. But um, I think, I think that forcing students to um, navigate with a screen magnifier can help actually, because it can help bring home to them. This is all I get. <laughs> um, or, you know, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of looking at, the, at your page through the paper towel roll. Um, I think that you can, I think that you can practice. I, I don't know. I, 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 I've, I've watched people try and do this. And I've watched people say they're really, really good at plain language and even, you know, like hire themselves out as a plain language person and still not recognize that they're using compound phrases or that they're, um, use, you know, they're, they're relying on low level inference. So I think that you have to become familiar with the actual users. There are ways to do that. Not everyone, you know, you can't, you don't always get to go out and test with low literacy users. But if you're doing any testing, you should get at least a couple because they, they're part of your audience. The other thing that's um, incredibly useful is if you can make it easy for the people who are most at risk, somewhat unsurprisingly, it becomes even easier for people who are not at risk. And no one ever said, oh, I wish that had been more complicated or taken more time, right? So if I'm just doing straight up usability testing, I will often go for people with low literacy. Um, but if, you, if you're trying to learn this and you don't have the opportunity to test directly, at least go watch some of the videos that are out there that show how people read, listen to, people reading out loud and maybe we should put more videos out there about that because you know as I say that I'd like 
I haven't looked for that on YouTube. I just show my own, right. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I will go look for those because we need those because the really, the only way to have it really come home to you is to, to, to see it, to empathize with, with what the world that they're experiencing, the message that they're receiving, which isn't what you wrote necessarily until you've really made it simple. We will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.